Hello, I'm Zara, a self-published author of young adult and new adult fiction. And I'm Kelly, a fantasy writer being held together by threads of optimism. And this is Writish, the podcast by writers for writers, where we discuss craft and hot topics in the writing community. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the worst writing advice we've heard. I would say write what you know is... I think it can be good advice, but the reason I put it on my worst writing advice is because it's very limiting. I think, you know, normally it's talking about the emotions, but if you've never been in a situation, it's hard to know what the emotions are, and it doesn't allow for writers to imagine what those emotions would be. Now, to add to this, I would like to, like, speak specify I think would be the right wording here that like whenever write what you know clearly you are talking about like genres and not stories that are based on like what a person's life would be so for those of you who don't know dear listeners I have um, a mental illness uh, DID uh, which is dissociative identity disorder and for someone to like write a story and that's like the sole plot point and they don't know anything about it, it would be kind of weird. But like, if you're normally like a fantasy writer, and you want to try sci-fi, I think that would be more encouraging. Like, yeah, you know fantasy, you know how to write fantasy, but it is limited if you just stick to fantasy and you want to try other genres. You, you know what I'm trying to say, right, Zara? <laughs> you're talking about people crossing genres because they either want to challenge themselves or they just get a story idea. I fall into the latter category where I write whatever story idea comes to me. Obviously, after vetting that it's, you know, can support the length of a novel. With crossing genres, I do think it is possible, again, to take in the genre. You should do some research and know what is popular. I think that's more of a marketing thing because I know with your story, you were worried about whether it was young adult, new adult, or adult based on the amount of cursing. And, you know, my advice and another writer friend's advice to you was write the story and then worry about it in revision. So I do think when it comes to crossing genres, you're never going to know until you try it after hopefully reading or consuming some of the content but with the emotions if you've you know never lost a grandparent or anyone else in your family or a close friend that's not to say that you shouldn't write it but you should obviously do research on it because you don't want to misrepresent it the same way that um you know you mentioned did yeah because not to say like a person that doesn't have this mental illness just, oh, well, this has to be off limits to that writer. Like, do your due diligence. And obviously, like, there are sensitivity readers. But it's just one of those things where I feel like normally whenever people hear write what you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is genre. But I know with sometimes, like, perception obviously is different. And sometimes people might be like, oh, just write characters based around like that writer's personal life experience or yeah it's it's a complicated thing i think own voices has sometimes complicated it a bit more because better than is like is bad representation better than no representation at all when you have um 
white authors writing black characters or straight authors writing queer LGBTQ IA plus character, you know, it's, it's a messy thing that I don't really want to get into in this episode. Maybe we'll do in a future episode. Because I know we have like some episodes planned to like go into like those heavier topics, but I just thought it would be like nice to insert it. So my first piece here of like bad writing advice is something I'm very passionate about and I could go on and on about, but I will not. (laughs) It is that a good writer is an avid reader. So while I do think you should be aware of what's selling on the market and like what has been released within like the past two years of your genre, age, category, Like, you should be aware of that and do your research and really look into it. But I don't think every writer has to be an avid reader to to be able to be a good writer. Because personally, I have never been able to, like, sit still long enough to read books all the time. Like, that's not something that I have a lot of extra time now to do, especially with two kids. But on top of that, before I had children, I obviously had a very different lifestyle, very busy lifestyle still. But even with that, I still couldn't sit and read a book. Like there would be some books that would hold my attention and maybe I could read a few chapters. But to say that in order to be a good writer, you have to be a good reader, I feel is very discouraging to those of us who maybe have a hard time with reading. I talked a lot about like Percy Jackson and stuff and what those books mean to me because whenever I found them or they were introduced to me, I was not doing the best in my academics and I didn't really care and I just was struggling a lot because I wasn't doing that well in school. And then here are a cast of characters that like I felt like I could really relate to. That and the style of the writing just really held me. So those books really got me into wanting to read more but obviously to this day I still have hard time trying to find pockets of time to read because the pockets of time I do have as a full-time mom is dedicated to writing my stories and I think that you can have a very vivid lively imagination to write and this drive and passion to write without having an equal driver passion to be a reader Unfortunately, you know, when I'm in school, I barely read and I always also kind of feel guilty. I don't think you need to absorb it through reading necessarily. I do think audiobooks are helpful in some cases because you can listen to them while doing other things. So the time constraint isn't necessarily there as much and it is uh, better for accessibility for people who can't focus long enough to read or you know might even have dyslexia or ADHD you know there are so many reasons why someone might not be able to read a book and I think saying that you have to be a reader to write a book is again a limiting piece of advice that's very exclusionary and I think we should be past that at this point but obviously we're not there yet. The next piece of advice that I think, I'm not going to say it can go to hell, um, but the advice that you shouldn't use adverbs 
ever doesn't stand up when you really think about it because said slowly as a dialogue tag is different than said quickly. That's about speed. And it's not about volume where you could say they shouted or they whispered, where obviously you don't necessarily want to say very quietly if you can say they murmured. But there are certain things where you need an adverb to create the accurate picture or experience of what you're writing. And I don't think people should be penalized for that. I think that's a good piece of advice because it is something I do. The example you gave was, I think, perfect right on the dot. Another thing to add to that, though, that I personally don't like is the said is dead. To put it bluntly, sometimes said, it just gets the job done for that sentence and you can continue. You don't need everything to be colorful because then it gets overwhelming. Whereas, you know, said is kind of an invisible word to a reader. I would only use that if you're making it clear which character it is in a dialogue with maybe multiple characters or it's unclear who's speaking like if someone went on for a very long speech and then and then you have more dialogue and you know it's a different person but you know sometimes you just need the reminder totally agree with you sometimes said gets the job done and don't reinvent the wheel if you don't have to yeah you don't gotta like overthink it so much I'm going to say something that I actually also included in the best writing advice. The write every day. We've talked a lot about how sometimes you need to take a break because if you don't, you burn out. And that's worse than taking the time you need to refill your creative well. Because, you know, in this podcast, we try and emphasize that writers are people and we have human needs. And that includes mental health, but also physical health. And if you're constantly writing all the time at a desk, your posture probably sucks and maybe you're not hydrating enough, which is another bad thing or not sleeping enough. I think the guilt that comes along with the knowledge that a lot of people live by right every day is harmful at times. I totally agree. And to play off of what you just said, I also have a little thing here that could be tied back to something I mentioned in the last episode. <laughs> so um, I have here, don't write that because it's already been done. So in the last episode, episode 11, I like said that I enjoy or like the advice, don't trend chase. And I feel like this is kind of different because your idea will have your own touch on it and you aren't setting out to write the next A Court of Thorns and Roses, for example. Like you're not striving to be like the next big thing or replicate something to a degree. Because I feel like that's what trend chasing is. And then by the time, you know, you get there, the trend's done. We've talked about this. But what I don't like with this is like, oh, don't write that because it's already been done is, yeah, everything has basically already been written, but it hasn't been written by you with your special spin through your eyes. So an example of this is like retellings. Look at how popular retellings are. Yes, we all know the story. And we all love the story, but each author has their own spin on it. So like look at Hades and Persephone and how many author tubers I know that has a Hades and Persephone retelling. Like, yes, we all know this, the traditional Greek story and the Greek myth, but the fact that each writer has taken that and inspiration from it and then made it into something that's their own, I think is really cool. And 
I think that that could be like the story of your heart and to tell someone not to write that just because, oh, well, it's already been done before is really discouraging whenever this person could have had a very unique idea and spin on something that was like a classic story. I definitely agree. Back in June, I was part of a live stream on Glory Writes the Blues channel, and we were talking about pitches and queries. We were talking about comp titles at the time, and someone asked, if you're doing a retelling, do you use the original like myth or story, fairy tale, et cetera, as a comp title? And I mean, the answer is yes. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is that um, retellings, again, you always have your own spin, like Kelly was saying. And the number of times Cinderella has been redone and any Grimm's fairy tale, which in it of itself were versions of oral storytelling at the time that they collected. So like there's nothing original really under the sun. One famous author says that there are seven stories, I think. I don't think it's five. I think it's seven stories. And then there's another famous author who actually said that there are only two stories. And those are someone goes on an adventure or a stranger comes to town. And I, I really like that because that gives you so many possibilities. The same way that I feel like people kind of rag on the romance genre. They're like, oh, it's so predictable. But the fact is, is that you have different characters every single time. And that makes the story unique. And while some of the challenges might be very tropey, the way that those play out, aside from the fact that, you know, if they're happy at 50%, you know that something's going to go wrong before they resolve things and get to the happily ever after the journey is always going to be different because an author is going to imbue the story with their unique point of view going back to the hades and persephone example you know we have an author tuber friend who's like a is changing the myth in a way that takes some of the blame off of hades because it's a misunderstanding and it's not a straight-up kidnapping and then also that her Persephone is not happy about the marriage at the start and is very vocal about it. So there's an actual dialogue between Hades and Persephone. And it's not just like, oh, Persephone is promised to Hades by Zeus and her mom fights it, but no one asks what Persephone is thinking. There are a lot of adult versions of Hades and Persephone where, you know, things get a little sexy <laughs> different than a Hades and Persephone retelling that's done for young adults the same way the version that Brody Ashton did in her Everneath trilogy. The concept of Hades and Persephone underpins the whole story, but she twists it in a way that you would never really expect. And it's very cool. And you get to the end, and if you find out that it's based on Hades and Persephone, you're like, oh, I see it. But going in, you could just be like, oh, this is another paranormal romance that doesn't have vampires and werewolves for a change. And that's interesting. (laughs) 
The next piece of advice I have some issue with is write drunk, edit sober. That's Ernest Hemingway, if you don't know. The meaning of it is generally like, don't limit yourself while drafting, just go through it and write down everything that comes to mind and then you can deal with it later in revision. And there are times when I do think there is a place for that. Again, like with your story, Kelly, where you were like, oh, what category should it be in? And therefore how much cursing is allowed. Minor details like that, that don't truly have a bearing on the plot can be dealt with later mm -hmm. but I feel like if you write down every single idea that you have in novel form I'm not talking about like oh you write it down in a bullet list you know maybe separate from the actual novel that you're writing it can lead you down a lot of false starts or tangents that are gonna lead to a very messy editing process and it's one of the biggest critiques of NaNoWriMo which we mentioned in our NaNoWriMo episode where people are like I don't want to write 50,000 words if I'm going to end up deleting half of them or more than half of them you know what I mean so I think you do want to think about what you're writing so maybe don't write drunk maybe write buzz <laughs> and then edit sober I love that and Speaking of the greats, another piece of advice that I take issue with is mimic the greats. I don't like this because obviously they found a routine that worked for their writing and their journey isn't the same as yours. So I don't think it's realistic to set out and pressure yourself. Instead of saying mimic the greats, it should be find something that like a routine that works for you. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely love watching Kate Kavanaugh's I Tried Writing Like series because it's fun to learn about these different writing routines. There's also a podcast called Writing Routines. And while it's cool, you have to acknowledge that circumstances are different, but also your habits might be different. Like I remember Kate Kavanaugh did Brandon Sanderson writing routine and he is like a complete night owl and Kate is a complete early bird. And it was really hard for her to do. And at the same time, when she tried... Haruki Murakami's routine much earlier on in the series, I think he wakes up at like 5am or maybe it was 4am. Either way, it was very early. You want to mimic the greats in the sense that you find something that works for you and allows you to produce great work, not literally copy and paste their routine into your own life because a lot of the times it's not going to work. Perfectly said. <laughs> I would say show don't tell can lead to a lot of purple prose. And for those of you who don't know, it's basically when you go on and on about something in a very flowery way and it detracts from the actual story. Um, if you're writing literary fiction, it's more common and more acceptable, but I'm more of a genre writer, uh, which is why the show don't tell thing sometimes gets to me because you do want to show someone's emotions, but sometimes you can just say that someone crossed their arms. You don't need to describe it more than that. And, you know, that's still showing, but also it's kind of telling and that's okay. And I think the rule show don't tell doesn't leave any room for nuance and it leads to a very boring read in my opinion if I have to read a whole paragraph about someone's facial expression. Like I'd rather read a sentence that gets to the point and might be a little bit more telly than pure showing. But it's okay because it's in service of the story and I can move on the same way that we talked about how said Sometimes that's all you need. Yeah, I definitely think that's a good point. I forget where I saw it. 
but I know it helped me with the whole show don't tell thing. It was like show emotion or show reaction and then tell feeling or tell like the inner thoughts. Like, for example, with Alara, whenever she's feeling anxious, I try to describe her body language. So that can kind of show that she is anxious in that moment. But I'm not going to write a whole paragraph. I could also tell the reader as an omniscient narrator what she's thinking as well in that moment. So it's like you can combine the two. But I also don't like like how show don't tell is such a vague piece of advice as well. Because it's like, oh, show don't tell. It's like, yeah, that's great. But like, can you elaborate on that a little bit? (laughs) I think it's misused in a lot of cases, which leads to a lot of writer anxiety that, you know, we could all do without because we're already anxious enough creatures. (laughs) And speaking of anxious enough, I know some writers are like super paranoid about people stealing their work. And I'm sorry if you are one of these writers, but I'm here to tell you that another piece of horrible advice is beta readers or critique partners will steal your work. I feel that this piece of advice, I don't know who started it, but beta readers are there to help you get your zero draft or your first draft that is probably completely garbage into a better form and they're supposed to give you criticism to help you perfect that story and you know most of the time beta readers are also writers in their own right so they have their own stories going on as well so i it's such a stretch to say that someone is going to dump their own story because they read your first draft and was like oh i love this idea let me take it perfect this idea and this draft and the amount of time and then go get myself an agent and then sell this novel idea to a publishing house and then be on the road to publication. Like it's just such a stretch and so unrealistic because these people are supposed to be here as a way for you to elevate your writing game and to help you. And in turn, you would hopefully help them back because I know with beta reading or alpha reading, it's a, Hey, you help me with my story. I'll look over your story kind of situation so to say that someone out there is going to steal your work and just take it and run with it is to me a a stupid stretch i think it also sets a precedent for a distrust which is not what you want in those relationships i'm not going to say it's never happened but even if someone did quote unquote steal your story idea a story ideas are not copyrightable And B, as we talked earlier, every author is going to write a story differently. So it's not going to be a copy of your work. Although there was that one case where some author like took some other famous author's thing and just changed names, which was bizarre and is the only case I can think of legit plagiarism. And I think it's tied in with the worry of pirating which i think is more common than someone stealing your work and passing it off as their own those things if they happen you deal with them but in general the writing community is friendly and that wants to help each other if you find beta readers and critique partners who are willing to work with you you need to be willing to meet them in the middle and if you're like withholding stuff because you're worried that they're gonna steal it 
then they can't help you to the full potential that you need. I think that's really well put. The last piece of advice that I personally don't really like is writing to market is selling out. We've talked about how you should know what's popular in the genre that you're writing. And we also talked about don't trend chase. And this is different because if you're writing for the romance genre or the fantasy genre or sci-fi, although I do think there is some more leeway in sci-fi because there's also dystopian and lots of sub genres uh even more so than you know fantasy where you have high fantasy and urban fantasy is that there are certain things that readers of a genre expect and it's the reason that they like said genre and if your book is in a genre and you don't meet those expectations you're gonna have a lot of angry readers and Therefore, you should keep your market in mind at some level when you're writing it. And that doesn't mean that you're selling out because you are telling your own personal story that you're coming up with and is unique in its own way, as we've emphasized multiple times in this episode. I do think that's a good piece of like to point out because you always hear the don't write to market. And I feel like that also goes with the whole trend chasing thing. But with how you were talking about how there are specific tropes, I guess, and genres that readers are expecting, it's a good thing to keep in mind. My last piece of advice here is something else I feel very passionate about, is if you aren't sad or mentally ill as a writer, then you're not going to create good work. And I think that's just bullshit. Because if you are struggling mentally, get that therapy, get that help, get whatever you need to make yourself feel better mentally. Because there's no point in struggling just for the sake of, quote unquote, being successful because you're a a struggling, sad, depressed artist. I think that this is very unhealthy. And there are some writers out there who are completely happy and content and have neurotypical brains. And you know what? They still produce good work. Like you don't have to be this constant state of misery in order to be successful. So I just want to really emphasize that because you do not have to be miserable to be successful in a creative field. We're going to talk about this at length in a future episode, but I totally agree. Don't have much to add other than some examples that I'm saving for that future episode. And like we said, if you're not functioning well, you're not going to create good work. Yeah. And I feel like that's just a good note to end on is don't hold on to misery to try to be successful. You know, take care of yourself, put yourself first. You got to be able to like refill that creative well. So this has been the Writers Podcast, and we'll be back with another episode next week. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at the Writers Podcast without a hyphen and on Kofi at ko-fi.com slash the Writers Podcast, again without a hyphen. And be sure to join us for our conversation about bullet journaling as writers. Bye. Bye!